Well, I hope you have your Bible with you, and I hope that if you have it with you, you're willing to pull it out at this point, if you don't already have it out, and you turn to the book of Acts. We are on our way through the book of Acts. We're actually going to be taking a little break from Acts uh, after today for a couple of reasons, one of those being that I will be uh, gone. I'm going to be traveling to uh, Hicksville, Ohio next week. I'm going to be doing uh, preaching a series of revival meetings at uh, Hicksville Mennonite Church. Uh, Chris earlier mentioned that uh, Steve Eicher, who is the pastor there, is our overseer. Uh, that's not really why I, why I, I get to go back. I was there a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, pray for me, if you would. Pray for our family. We, we take our family there. They usually are gone for a couple of days. That's uh, sometimes stressful for our family, but uh, also it can be very uh, helpful and very growing for our family. But pray for the meetings, especially. My heart always is to bring renewal uh, into, into people. And I don't know exactly every shape that those messages are going to take yet. Uh, but uh, I know that there's some, there's some sense already that, that uh, the Lord uh, wants me to, to, to bring this, uh, this idea or, or challenge or this, uh, this growth, this renewal that says wherever we are with the Lord, uh, there's always another step. There's always another place to walk deeper with Him, whether that's the initial, you know, coming to know Jesus or whether it's uh, maybe you've walked with Him for a long time, but there's always more there that He wants uh, our continued allegiance. And there's somehow that's going to be, that's going to be the main theme. And again, I don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but uh, I trust the Lord to bring those out. It's just pray with me, if you would, next week, next Sunday, Tuesday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Anyway, because of that, we'll be taking a break, and then we have a special Sunday after that, which is uh, the uh, group from India will be sharing. By the way, a few of you asked me about that. I should have probably said this in the opening, because uh, this takes away my sermon time. Actually, you know, it doesn't, because I just keep preaching, but it, it just makes it go longer. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we can appreciate honesty, right? I should have said this. Uh, uh, that, a couple of you asked me about this. On the 14th in a couple of weeks, the Sunday morning service, we're going to be giving the time to the India group. They're going to be sharing, just not during Sunday school time, just during the, the service time. We're going to compress everything down. We'll probably get rid of sharing time, uh, just sing a couple of songs, and then we'll have the, the team from, that went to India will be sharing a few things, how God changed their life uh, while they're in India kind of thing. And then we'll take an offering for, the, uh, for serving the ministries, which is our church's uh, support for the field that we support. Uh, we just started a new one this year. We met them. We'll be hearing about that then. In the evening is also a missions night. It just so happens it's a missions night. Uh, and the youth group will just have gotten back from their youth trip, uh, mission trip. They're going to be talking about their trip to Costa Rica in the evening. So a couple of you were, uh, I think, had asked me, weren't sure which, which way they, uh, that, that was going to be. So it's going to be a whole day of missions. I hope you're okay with that. It happens that the, the Sunday morning is missions because it's, we're flopping it with, normally that would be a third Sunday, but the third Sunday then is Easter. And so we thought it would probably work better to not have it on Easter. So that's the other reason that this will be on a hold, because we'll have Easter after that. So... Just giving you a bit of a, uh, a, break, a bit of a, a, a look what's coming down the road here. We are going to finish uh, chapter 23 in the book of Acts, and I want to bring this verse to us this morning. I didn't know how this was going to tie in with Sunday school necessarily, but it actually happens to you. But I want to bring this verse to you because we left last week uh, with the fact that Paul was uh, in, in, imprisoned, right? I mean, he's actually on military guard is what he is. It means he's kind of free to move about, but he's got a, a soldier that's chained him at all times so that it keeps him where he's supposed to be until his hearing happens. Uh, but he's imprisoned, and uh, the Tribune's trying to find out why they're trying to get this guy, but every time he can, he can't, they can't can't quite get there. But in the meantime, Jesus comes to Paul and says, take courage. Just like you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify in Rome. 
So take courage. Your journey's not done. You're not going to die here. And at the same time, you have a group of men, at least 40 of them, that have vowed, as they wake up that morning, they have vowed and said, we are not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. So this is, this is, the, this is the, the battle that's happening, right? You have God saying, Paul, you're going to go to Rome too. And you have, uh, you have uh, men saying, we are going to starve until Paul is dead. And it reminded me of this verse because in, uh, God says through Isaiah, he says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. As humans, you can take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. You can speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, in that case, God is bringing comfort to the Israelites because there were those coming who want to press in against them and say, and they announced rather loudly at the, at the walls that say, hey, don't listen to those guys and they're telling you that God's going to save you because we are going to utterly destroy you. And God says this, people can say things, they can counsel, they can speak words, but after all, it is God who decides, right? And we're going to see how this is going to work out, how it's going to start unfolding almost immediately here in the text. Let's read Acts chapter 23, verses 12, I'm sorry, not 12, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now the son of Paul's sister, it begins right away in verse 16, the unraveling of the plan. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and he said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things." Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. So here's the letter that this guy, whose name is Claudius Lysias, he puts his name first. That's how they did it. Here's the letter he wrote. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man, referring to Paul, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. 
on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, a lot of this text, let's just say this up front, a lot of this text is moving the story along. So a lot of what we do today is just looking at what happened in the story, piecing it apart, making sure we're picking through. There are a couple of things as we go through, however, that we want to make sure that we highlight and pull out of that story for us today. By the way, I would appreciate if someone would be able to bring me a glass of water. My throat's, uh, maybe I'm trying to talk too loud, but my throat's being a little, little iffy here. But let's jump in. So the very first uh, part, the very first thing we want to talk about is that uh, God begins to unravel this plan immediately. Uh, let me just say this again. We understand when we look at the Bible text today, we understand how foolish it is, right? For the people, the men, the guys to make this oath and say, we're going to do this and God may curse us if we don't get it done. We understand how foolish it is that they're fighting against God that way. But I would caution us at how many times we get the similar kinds of things. Now, hopefully, I don't think we're trying to kill people. But we get similar kinds of things in our heads sometimes where it's almost like, I will not change my mind. I will be right about this. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not thinking of any specific situation. I just want to be clear. I'm not thinking of any specific thing right now. I'm just, I, I know how we are. I know how I am sometimes. Where I begin to argue about something just because I want to be right without actually listening to what's happening. So let's not too quickly get too upset with these people. Thanks, Elwood. But God begins immediately to unravel these plans, right? Now, it makes sense, by the way, because Paul was a Pharisee, right? Which means the members of his family were Pharisees. That's how he got to be a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. And, he got to be, and that's how he got to be there, which means his sister, of course, is part of that whole group. It's part of the, part of the whole thing. So that his sister's son, his nephew, he overhears these plans, and he goes in, and he tells the centurion. He goes in the, actually, sorry, I take that back. He goes in the barracks, and he tells Paul what's going on. Now, just a few notes here about what's happening. Uh, there's a couple of different ways that you could be held in custody in the Roman world. You may not be interested in these details, but there was, uh, Paul, in this case, is under military confinement. He's, uh, he's under military custody is what, what, what the word was, which meant basically that he had some freedom to move around. He was not like, you know, uh, you know a, a flight risk, so to speak, in terms of that they, gave, they locked him down. He had some freedom to move around, but he had a soldier that was always with him typically chained to him. Uh, now, the soldier's left arm, because most of them were right-handed, so the soldier's left arm to Paul's right arm would have been chained all the time. There were some times where they were held in public custody, which meant they would have been in the public jail, which is the worst place you could be. That was a place that was a big old dump. Then they also had what was called free custody, which basically meant that you were pretty much free to move about however you wanted to. There was one person of high standing, a Roman citizen, who was charged with keeping tabs with you and making sure that you're going to show up the day you were supposed to show up for case. That was not Paul's case, though, either, because he didn't have that much freedom. He was in the barracks. He was being held. Actually, it was good, right? That's why he was put under military custody, because the tribune knew that if he goes out and about, he's going to get killed. So he goes to the barracks, and you get a glimpse at what kind of weight citizenship in Rome held. Because the prisoner go to, tells the centurion and orders him, well, maybe he doesn't say order, but he really does. He says, take this young man to the tribune and, and let him see what he wants to say. And the centurion does what? He doesn't say, hey, I don't have to obey you. You're the prisoner. He says, okay. He takes Paul's nephew, takes him into the uh, tribune, and he says these words to him. 
Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. At this point, he has no idea what's going on. By the way, this centurion, there's a good, pretty good chance it's really going to radically affect his evening coming up. But he has no idea what's going on. But I put this verse up here because in a culture that they lived in, it was everything to have your freedom. Notice, we just had that exchange, right? Paul being stretched out for, the, uh, for whipping, and he says, hey, can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the, the tribute immediately says, hey, I bought mine at a high price. I was set free with a high price. And think of the Jewish mindset. Freedom is everything, right? They hated the Romans. Why? Because they were over them. They weren't free. Freedom is everything. So to say, Paul the prisoner was a, it was a negative thing. That's a, that's a slight on him. Paul the prisoner, he's, he's downgraded with that phrase. But the reason I point it out is because Paul doesn't look at it that way, does he? In fact, what was a negative to almost everybody else, Paul began to proudly take as his moniker. Notice how many times in the rest of his New Testament letters does Paul identify himself exactly like that. I'll just give you one example, Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Many times in Paul's letters, in almost all of Paul's letters actually, he gladly refers to himself as a prisoner, not of Rome, but a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It strikes me, I, I, this caught my attention because we today live similarly in a culture that is really, really, really enthused and engrossed with this idea of freedom. We are a free country, right? We will take arms to fight for our freedom. We must have our freedom. It is our right to be free. And I want to ask us this morning, do you consider yourself free or a prisoner? And I immediately tell you the same thing. It's a bit of a trick question, right? Did Paul see himself as free or as a prisoner? It depends on what you think, on which way you think I'm asking that. There is freedom in Christ, right? Which I'm guessing some of you that said I'm free. But I suspect that there are very few of us who willingly say I'm a prisoner of Jesus. You know, this is, this, sometimes, most times when I have this conversation, I come at it from the other angle. I, I talk about how the fact that we love Jesus for saving us. We don't always love Jesus for being our, our Lord, right? We're not always so willing to take up the Lordship of Jesus like we are the salvation of Jesus. We love that Jesus forgives our sins and sets us free. We don't always love that that necessarily means that he bought, paid for us, he bought us, we are his, he owns us. We are under his command. I suggest to you that this idea, this way of looking at things is foreign to most of us, just like it was to most of them. But Paul saw things differently. He said, I will gladly say I'm a prisoner of God. I'll gladly say I'm Jesus' prisoner. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't recognize that you have freedom in Christ. You are free from sin. You are free from self. You are free from Satan. You are free from the, the, the bondage of death through Jesus. All of those things, by the way, actually just mean that you are now a slave to him. That's exactly what Paul wrote in Romans, by the way. I, I, would, I would encourage us to just consider the fact that perhaps we should more often think of ourselves as a prisoner. You know, Paul said this. I didn't put this verse up there, but you know, Paul said this. He said, you are a slave to whatever you obey. In other words, 
I think if Paul were here today and could tell you, I think he would say something that would sound a little bit like this. Now, I'm taking a little liberty with, with what he said uh, and putting it in my own words, so maybe I, I should be careful about this. But I think he would say, you are a prisoner all the time of something. Either to sin or to yourself, maybe even your flesh, or to Jesus. But you are a prisoner. We don't often think of ourselves that way, do we? Maybe we should a little more, because it would reflect the reality of the situation, right? When I say I'm free in Christ, it just means I'm free from all those things that enchain me. I'm not free to do what I want to. I'm not free to just be whoever I want to be. I am a prisoner of the Lord. May we be as, if I could use the word proud, as, as quick to acknowledge or to own up to or to gladly say it with Paul. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. That's who I am. That's who I want to be. Well, let's return to the story. The Tribune pulls the nephew aside. He's very discreet. He doesn't make him say it in front of everybody. He says, hey, come, pulls him aside says, what do you want to tell me? And the nephew tells him of the plot. He tells him everything that's going to happen. He says, here's how it's going to be. We read about it last week, so we know that's exactly what they decided, right? He said, hey, he said, hey you counsel, you ask Paul to be let come down, to, uh, come, to have him come down again, and, and we'll pretend that, we're gonna, that you're going to like, uh, examine him more closely. You're going to you know, determine his case in some other way. But really, the point isn't that. The point is that while he's on his way, we are waiting, and we have bound ourselves, and we will kill him. And the tribune says, this is not how it's going to happen. This is not how it's going to work. So he dismisses the nephew, and he says, I don't want you to tell anyone that you've informed me of these things. Now, one, of course, that would be true because he doesn't want anyone uh, to know that he already knows. But the second thing would be he probably correctly recognizes that that would also place the nephew's life in extreme danger, right? They begin to find out that he went to the barracks. He told Paul. He, in fact, told the tribune that of, the, of their plan that things would not end well with him. Now, that's not actually where the story ends, though. The Tribune doesn't say, okay, let me take a few hours or let me take a day or so to deal with this. Let me hear what they have to say. Because Paul's nephew, actually what he says is, when they come to ask for Paul, then don't be persuaded. That's the words he uses. Don't be persuaded by them to let Paul go. Like, stand firm. Just say, no, we're going to keep Paul here. Make them come to you. That's really kind of what he's asking. But the Tribune says, no, we're going to do it better than that. We're going to do one better than that. So what he does is he immediately turns and he calls two of his centurions. Now, I don't know if it's the same centurion or not, but two of his centurions. Now, a centurion is over how many men? 100 men. So it makes sense that he says to each of the centurions, get your 100 men ready. But he's not done there yet. He says, get ready 200 soldiers. That would be the, each, uh, the cohort that was underneath each one of those, but also 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea in the third hour of the night. Now, this is, this is not a small force. The centurions, by the way, are what we today would call heavy infantry. They were the big guys. They were the, they were the up close and personal fighters. They got things done in terms of it was like, like close battle. But the other ones, the spearmen, are the light infantrymen. These were actually, you could also, according to the, the word that's there, really just means that they were the ones that fought from a distance, which means they either chucked spears or they were what was known as slingers, which means they, they slung rocks at people. Think of what David did. Um, they were light infantrymen. They could fight from a distance. And, of course, he also has 70 horsemen, including mount, a mount for Paul to ride on. And anybody else who was going with Paul? This... I mean, I, I'm trying to get you to understand, this was not just a, like, 
hey, I'll give you a couple of guards and we'll see if you can, you know, quietly get you out. I mean, you think this is a quiet exit in the night, right? But how, many no- how much noise do you think 200 foot soldiers, well, sorry, 400 foot soldiers and 70 horses make? I don't think it was probably so quiet, actually. But it was also something that nobody messed with, right? I mean, when you see 400 men marching towards you and 70 horses in the middle of those 400 men, I don't think you're just going to so quickly wade in there and be like, well, I got this. They begin at 9 o'clock at night. That's the time. They begin at 9 o'clock at night, and they begin their march to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the coast. It is the, part of the, the place where Felix, the governor, he's the governor of the Syria Cilicia area, which is that whole corner. I don't have a map to show you this morning, but that whole corner around the Mediterranean there. Um, and he is actually the guy who's over this tribune. So it's kind of like he's kicking up the case. By the way, it is entirely appropriate for us to think that the tribune may have intended on, on moving Paul up the chain, so to speak, anyway. Because think of it. He's been trying to figure out why they're trying to get Paul. He's coming to no conclusion. What's the next thing to do? I, I got to bump this up the chain and go to somebody more powerful than me to figure out what's going on. There's a good chance he was going to do that already. But this moves the timeline up. He's not going to wait until the next day. He's not going to wait until a couple of days later. He says, I want you to leave now and march through the night and go to Caesarea. And he drafts the letter and sends it along with him. Now, there's a couple of things we should note about that letter. The first is, and I, I actually alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, the first is that the Tribune takes a little bit of liberty in how he retells the story, right? A little bit of liberty. He puts himself in the best light possible. He says, hey, we saw the Jews. They were beating this guy up. They were going to kill him. And we came swooping in because we found out that he was a Roman citizen, and we saved him. Right? Is that what happened? When did he find out he was a Roman citizen, remember? When did he find out? You tell me. After they, after, well, he was already beat up, but when he had him stretched out for the whips, right? That's when he found out he was a Roman citizen. You see that, I mean, it's not a huge difference, but that changes it a bit, right? It's not like the tribune has to fess up and say, I was going to whip this guy. He's, he says, you know, we, we discovered he's a Roman citizen. He makes it sound like that was why they came and rescued him. Not, you know, he makes himself look in the best light possible. But let's note something else he does say. He says in his letter, and these are, these are important words. He says in his letter, I found, verse 29, I found that he was being accused. Oh, I didn't move. I'm not sure why. I'd, Bryce, you want to go ahead? I'm not sure what happened there, but you want to move that slide up one? I found that he was being accused about questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Now, that's a, one of the reasons I think that's important for us is we again have seen, several times before we've seen this overlay, these parallels between Paul and other biblical characters. Lots of them, but also his own Savior, Jesus, right? Just the path that was laid. There's a parallel. And here we find that again. Do you know that every person of the Roman state that Jesus came in contact with during his case, during his, 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 what ended up being his death, every one of them declared him innocent, And Paul now is going to be no different. Keep track of it. As we go through the book of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts here, every one of the Roman authorities that comes in contact with Paul's case keeps finding him innocent. And yet, the story moves on, right? Now, Jesus ended up dying, which because that was what the will of God was. Paul will end up in Rome because that's what the will of God was. (laughs) Right? You You see the pattern I'm trying to lay here? So, sends this letter, sends Paul, and 
by implication of the letter he's going to say the next morning when the, when the Jews come to him to say, hey, bring Paul to us, he's going to say, nope, he got transferred, he's moved, he's at Felix, Caesarea, now you have to go there and make your accusation, which they will. That's what we're going to pick up here in, in chapter 24 when we get back to it. I'm going to reconnect here because my, my slide is not keeping up. I'm not sure what's going on there. Thank you. So let's go to the next slide here. So the soldiers do what they're asked to do. According to their instructions, they took Paul and they brought him by night to this place called Antipatris. Now, just a couple of details that I think we should, we should know. And one thing I want to pick up here that I want to pull out of the text again for us today. Antipatris is at the edge of the Judean hills. So what happens is they're in Jerusalem. Again, I should have brought a map for you because maybe that's not helpful for you, but for me it's helpful. They're in Jerusalem and they're moving, I'll stand this way, they're moving this way toward the coast and they have the first, they have the Judean hillside. And that's really where the place where there's lots of Jewish people. That's really where the places where there's a lot of people that have this, this angst against Paul. They take him as far as Antipatris, which is on the outskirts of that. From there on, all they have left is a coastal plain. Now this was no small march, by the way. One place I looked said it was 40 miles from Jerusalem to Antipatris. There's another about 25 miles from there to Caesarea. But the soldiers take him at least that far. Here's what I want to say about this, though. It's really easy to sometimes just move past details in the text, and maybe sometimes it's okay to do that. But I want to pause again and to reconsider. The tribune's decision to send Paul to Caesarea by night had dramatic effect on at least 470 other men, right? Like a big number of men. 200, I'm sorry, 400 of which had to walk through the night, possibly 40 miles, and then, of course, walk 40 miles back to Jerusalem. I'm struck again, and this, this to me leaps off the page. The soldiers did what? They followed instructions. You remember the story of Jesus and the centurion in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus marvels. It's, I think I mentioned this when I talked this before one time, but it's only one of two places in the, in the New Testament, one of only two places where the Bible mentions that Jesus marvels at something. He marvels at the faith of the centurion. He marvels at the way that he understands authority because the centurion says, remember he says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to the house to heal my servant. You just need to say the word because I'm a man under authority. I know that when my, uh, the person giving my orders tells me what to do, I do it. No question. I understand authority. So you, having authority over everything, you can just say the words. You don't have to come. Just say the words, and it'll get taken care of. And Jesus marvels at that. He says, in fact, that's, that's faith. That's faith to know that God has complete authority and can do whatever he says is going to happen. And we see it again. Here are these Roman soldiers. They are just told, after a day of being awake, hey, by the way, at 9 o'clock tonight, I want you to march 40 miles with all your, your armor on, protecting this one guy, and get him, excuse me, get him out of harm's way, and then you can turn around and come back. Ah, no biggie, right? It's just, you know, you know, another, I don't know how many hours that takes to march that far. No biggie, right? But they obeyed. You know, I asked earlier, are you free or are you a prisoner? And I tried to get us to think about the fact that you're a prisoner. This fits right with it. How about us? When we are given instructions by the Lord through his word, what do we do? Do we obey? Or do we say, well, I'm not sure that has authority over me? In fact, 
Paul picks up on this when he writes to Timothy. He says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. Notice what words he's using. He knows what these centurion guys look. Don't you think he was thinking about this? He was looking around these guys. I don't, maybe he might have even apologized to them. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry that you have to march through the night to get me to safety. And then he says, listen, brothers and sisters, learn from these people. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to do what? Is to please the one who enlisted him. Rarely do we today operate with that kind of understanding of authority. My singular aim in life is to please the one who enlisted me into God's kingdom. Who is that? That's Jesus. You might even say that's the Holy Spirit who enlisted me, right? Because no one comes to the Father unless what? Unless the Father draws him and he uses the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. You may say that. It's the same person, right? God is one. Again, I'm going to push against what we so much do not like to hear. You and I do not get to call the shots in our lives. We are not the masters of our own domain. We are a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We should not get wrapped up. I mean, I love the picture. and Hopefully you get We should not get wrapped up in civilian affairs. Oh, believe me, there have been so many times in my life where I have had to recognize and confess I have been so wrapped up in what is, according to God, a civilian affair. Something that has nothing to do with God's kingdom. And I'm totally wrapped up in it. I'm totally consumed. I'm totally spending so much time and energy and all these kind of things. But a good soldier doesn't do that because he knows I have one aim, and that's to please the one who's enlisted me, the one who's my master, the one who's in charge of me. So that when he says, pick up your, your, your armor at 9 o'clock at night and march through the night, then you do it. Amazing, amazing, amazing that what everyone else would look at and say, heathen Roman soldiers can teach us so much, can teach us so much about what it's like to be part of God's kingdom. Well, let's keep going. They come, they leave Paul uh, in, uh, the, the 400 foot soldiers leave Paul in Antipatris. From there on, it's the coastal plain. The threat has lessened. They leave him with the 70 horsemen. They take him all the rest of the way into Caesarea. When they come to Caesarea, they deliver the letter to Felix, and they also present Paul before him. With just a few things here, we're going to be finished up. This is going to wrap up very quickly here. They present Paul before him. There's really one little detail left. Felix has to make sure that this man who was just brought in his presence is really his to deal with. Does he come, is he under my jurisdiction is really the question. Does he come from someplace that I need to deal with? Now, I don't know if you look at this and say he was hoping to try to get rid of Paul or if he's just doing his job and saying, I want to make sure that Paul really belongs here in my place under my authority, under my jurisdiction. But he asked Paul where he's from. Paul says, I'm from Cilicia, which is, in fact, in Felix's area of governing. And so he says, okay, you're going to stay here. I'm going to give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. This is where we're going to leave the text today. Paul is now moved on. By the way, also by God's sovereignty, we should see this, that he is not moved to a different place. Caesarea is the most direct route to Rome, by the way, because it's the place where all the ships port, it's where all the places, and, and it's got a direct route across the sea, which is in fact where Paul's going to go eventually. God knows what he's doing, right? We shouldn't, uh, that should be, that's, that's a tongue-in-cheek statement, right? God knows what he's doing. He leaves Paul right there, 
And Felix says, when your accusers come, well, here are your case. Paul doesn't have to wait long, by the way. If you look at just one more verse down, we're not going to get there today, but one more verse down. Five days. Five days they come. This whole time, this back and forth, this big protective unit, all the stuff that's going on, this, this tug of war for Paul, this direction that he knows God is going on, I have no doubt that many times Paul reminded himself of that night when Jesus stood next to him and said, take courage, Paul, as you and I should too. This is how the disciples of Jesus live their lives. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Even though it sometimes is hard. Maybe I shouldn't even say sometimes, often, maybe just about all the time, when we come down and dig into the depths of your word, it's hard because it goes against the grain of what I want to do, what my flesh wants to do. I am just like my uh, predecessors who came before me, all the way back to Adam and Eve, when they said, you know, I just kind of would like to know good and evil. God said, but I don't know if it really was true. Maybe it looks like it's good to eat. It looks like it would be good for me. Ah, oh, Father. Teach us the reality of our state, the reality of where we are at, the reality of our imprisonment, if I can put it that way. That's why you, Jesus, said, come to me when you worry and burden. Take my yoke upon you. It's your way of saying, Jesus, that we're yoked to you, that we are a prisoner of you. But you've also given us the encouragement right in that, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Imprisoned to you is like freedom. It's, 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 the, it's, it's peace and joy and fullness and all the good things of you, the good things of your kingdom. Those not to be confused with the, the good things the world wants to try to offer, which end up leaving a bitter taste in our mouth. Your word counsels us, Father, through Paul, that we are slaves, we're, we're, we're in prison somewhere, we're, we're, whoever we're obeying is where we're at. But, but when we look honestly at our lives, when we are obedient to our flesh to sin, what kind of results were we getting in our lives? Are we happy with those? Were they fruitful? Were they fulfilling? Or did they leave us empty and in pain and without hope? For being a slave to righteousness brings hope and peace and joy. God, that's where we want to be. Help us today, every one of us here today. Give us the grace, give us the strength, the courage to say, I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm enslaved to him. I want to do his bidding. He has authority over me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the grace that you give us to continue to make us aware of these things before it's too late. Oh, God, give us soft hearts that we may respond to your spirit today, but in all, every part of our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Having prayed for a soft heart, I ask that you, that each of us, you out here today, brothers and sisters, that you soften your heart before God, that as you leave today, as you walk through this week, that you will yield to his word, to his spirit's direction in your life, that you may represent Jesus Christ where you're at. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.